just went through a turning of the year. And as I promise you, not by my promise, but by God's promise, spring is coming very soon. This is a time that's a good opportunity for many to think about beginnings. There are many different beginnings in the Bible. One of my very favorites is uh, the beginning of the Gospel of John, when it reveals who God is and where he was at the beginning of all things. Who doesn't like hearing in the beginning that God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Who doesn't like to hear all the different beginnings of the Bible? But, but one of my other favorite beginnings is when God calls his disciples. So I'll take a look at that and then hear the things that Jesus begins to teach uh, immediately thereafter. I'd like to look in Luke chapter 6. Uh, starting in... Verse 13. Now, it's hard to start a passage. It starts with the word and, but this is one of those passages. It happens just after Jesus had um, healed a man who had a withered hand, but he'd done it on a day that the Pharisees did not like. What was happening was he was continuing to reveal through his miracles that he was the Son of God and is the Son of God. His miracles take a more, far more important place in our understanding of Jesus, when you think of them that way, that the purpose of the miracles was that God would bless the world by revealing his son to be his son. And just for a moment, this as a quick aside, remember, this is the loving kindness of God. He could have revealed that Jesus was the son of God any way he wanted to. He could have shown his glory. He could have appeared as uh, the beings that showed up in the beginning of Ezekiel with lights that shined from them like rainbows. Uh, he could have revealed himself like he did in Uh, John's revelation when he shows up and he's got eyes of fire and feet glowing like bronze, revealing his full glory. Instead, he elected to reveal himself by doing good unto the weak and the broken, doing good to those who most desperately needed help. How kind and loving is our Savior. But here he calls his disciples. Verse 13 of chapter 6, it says, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom also he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas his brother, Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. And he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people, and out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And they were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there was a virtue that came out of him, and healed them all. I'm going to read in a moment what Jesus began to teach here, but I would like you to take a moment and notice a few things that just happened. The first is the last that we just read, that Jesus was healing efficaciously. It was coming out of him, and his, by, his virtue was just leaking out of him and healing people without even a word of power. This is one of the few times Jesus healed without giving a command either to the sickness or to the person to do something. He spoke no word. It was very similar to his first miracle where the water just became wine because he desired it to be so. Why was he doing this? Why was he doing this strange miracle where he was just healing everyone near him, everyone that could get close to him? Because the words he's going to say next are of paramount importance. You must understand that he came here with power. He came speaking things that were otherworldly. 
things that were messages directly from heaven. He says again and again that he says nothing of himself, that only the things his father sent him to say, he said. And then he proved it, because, beloved, you should be skeptical. You should consider and you should understand that God wants you to rightly divide the word of God. He wants you to rightly see things in the world. The reason I say that is because the first verse we're going to read here has been often in recent generations used as a bludgeon by those who desire power and other things. But if we understand the scriptures rightly, we can't be used and abused by folks like that who would rather steal the sweet doctrines of Jesus and use them against us. Second thing I'd like you to notice is the disciples themselves. Of these disciples, it seems that none of them were learned or well-connected. They were not any particular men of the world which means this kingdom that Jesus is now here establishing was not one that needed anything of the world. If you remember in Acts, it says to the disciples that they confused the leaders who had been learned men their entire lives, who had been powerful their whole lives. They said, when did these men learn letters? Because they obviously spoke as ones who had been educated, however, not having education themselves, at least not in that way. They had no earthly power. You know, in the book of Zechariah, that mighty and wonderful passage that we so often lean on. It said, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord, which Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. God would have the men who would eventually found his religion, found his teaching as it went out into the world, teach his doctrine to all the world, be men who couldn't boast about anything. Again, they weren't well-connected politicians. They weren't men who had been brought up in places where you would think they would understand how all things work. They were simple, humble men who had various kinds of jobs. Some of them were um, not highly looked upon. One was, at least one was a tax collector. Some were just fishermen. That doesn't mean they weren't hardworking. It doesn't mean they didn't do well with their business. But we should recognize that they had nothing to bring to Jesus. This is the best proof of where his his religion came from. It didn't come from money, high ideas, or an army. Every other idea, every other religion in the world came from that. But Jesus came entirely to establish his word through his spirit. Lastly, I want you to recognize that he chose Judas. He chose Judas. This is important for all of us because we must, if we, lest we think we stand, we must watch and guard our hearts lest we fall because Judas, I assure you, thought he was picked because he deserved it. He, picked, he was picked and was given a lot of work to do. Even in that last hour when he was with the disciples, Jesus showed them as he dipped in the sop to uh, reveal to them that he was going to betray him. He was, his heart was, was filled with sorrow that this man who had been a friend of him for years would betray him, even though it was the plan. He was still filled with sorrow about it, and he revealed it to them, but they couldn't see it. Because then when he said, what you do, do quickly, they thought he was going to do some business. If they'd understood what Jesus meant when he said that, they wouldn't have thought that. Well, then why would it be that way? Because they thought Judas had a special inside track with Jesus. He handled the money. He handled dealing with the poor. They thought he was someone special, and surely he did too. Any man who handles the gospel... You might stand before you if you were raised up to do that, or as you do that in your life, be careful. Because the world we live in is not heaven. Now, the nearest to hell any of God's elect will have is here, right? But the most of heaven that all of those 
who are to be damned is here. And even Paul said that when he left, grievous wolves would come out from among you. That there is always this mixing of the wheat and the weeds, as Jesus said in that parable. So we don't get to walk freely assuming that uh, we are safe. The devil himself goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So remember that of all those that God had raised up, even then, in that time, we could see that there was one who was not of God's kingdom. Now, with all that solemnity and heaviness aside, Jesus was healing, and here he was going to say something amazing. Now, I'm going to read um, the first, the first uh, dozen or so verses of this section. I'm going to read on until about verse 38, because it's all of one piece. But then I'm going to concentrate primarily on verse 20 this morning. He said, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men that shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, also offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love them that love them, love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners, and to receive as much again. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken over. I'm sorry, and shaken together, and running over. Shall men give unto your, into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. The words of Jesus. He says, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I read that whole passage because you must have context for that saying. Poverty is a matter that was going to continue. Being of Judas, he was concerned about giving money to the poor, so he said. But it was revealed in the scriptures that he said this because he was a thief and he would take his share of whatever money was put into the pot. Jesus said to him that the poor will always be with you. The poor will always be with you. There's many reasons for this. When Jesus says, blessed be ye poor, he's not talking about the necessary byproduct of a certain type of life. If a man goes out and will spend all he has on the sake of riotous living, would Jesus call him blessed? Of course not. We know that, and we know that, and we think of a young, strong man who wastes himself, but there are many other poor people who are there for various reasons and actions. I'd like to look at it in reverse for a moment, though. Money. 
Money is a funny subject because it's both very obvious and very confusing. It's one of those strange things, right? You have things like love that you know are spiritual. And then you have uh, things like carpet that you know are physical. Money is both. Money is both. Because of where it comes from. Being Americans, we have a particular history. You all know, I'm sure, the uh, summed up version of this saying. But the president said it, oh, 100 years ago now. After all, the chief business of the American people is business. They are profoundly concerned with producing, buying, selling, investing, and prospering in the world. And despite the many changes that have happened, that's still the case today. And so how do we deal with what the Bible says about what Christians should do with their money as it relates to giving to the poor and the church and everything else? Well, we have a few examples in Scripture. First is in Acts. There was a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God and heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye be judged, if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So she had enough house to house them. It's important. She was a seller of purple. It was a more expensive product in that time. She had resources and assets. But the most important thing was not how much money she had. It was, as I said, whose heart the Lord had opened. You see, what mattered to Lydia was that the Lord had opened her heart, had changed her, made it possible she should believe on the Son of God, and in so doing, lay hold on eternal life. But then what she had, she freely gave. Now, she didn't give everything and impoverish herself, but there are examples for that too, right? But in this case, she gave of what she had freely to the disciples, of her time, of her resources, so that the word of God might be spread. This is a part of what it means to make yourself poor for the gospel's sake. For you see, if you were to go out and work today, you would be able to earn a certain amount of money. Instead, you're using your time to be here, to serve God, to encourage God's people, and also to obey him. And in so doing, you are, in a small way, impoverishing yourself physically in this world if this world was the only thing that was right it's a small sacrifice you make but it's one you're glad to make because you know that god is in debt to no man god is in debt to no man and that's why i read that whole passage because he goes on and on and says over and over and over again that he will repay and you your rewards are better rewards because god owns everything says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills he can give you anything he wants we live in a wonderful nearly magical time I came down here from a hundred miles away this morning, and it was barely an inconvenience. Truly. It was warm in the car. We flew down on a winter's day, and it was easy, right? We live in an amazing time, and we have been blessed beyond measure. God has continued to pour out good things to all mankind. But the question is, what is the right time and place to do with what we have? You know there was a time later when they came and laid down what they had at the apostles' feet. Distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Joseph, but who by the apostles was named Barabbas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now in this time, everybody was running. There was a new church, and they were all under attack. They were all being persecuted. Many of them had to lose their businesses because they left. There was a time of desperate need. At this time, this man sold what he had and gave it freely. Now, did he do that because he was concerned with everybody seeing him do it? I don't think so. I don't think the Bible would have recognized it without recognizing the sin because that happened to another person at the same time. But here it says that he did that. Why? Because there was need. And because the need was that the gospel should be spread, that the apostles had a place and the ability to do what needed doing, which was that the word should go out. The most important thing, again, every resource on earth is less important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
everything you've ever had, every pleasure you've ever enjoyed, is significantly less than that the word go out that Jesus came with power to overthrow the enemy and now holds the keys of death and hell in his hands in complete control of that dominion now gives freely of eternal life. What wonderful news is this? And how must we share, we share this again and again? But, and I don't want to take too much time. Sorry, Danny. I want to just recognize what, we, what money is. What is it? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, wisdom is a defense and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Money, wisdom, both are a defense. If you use your imagination for a moment, you can think of a few examples where that's the case. Money can be used to pay for a doctor's bill. It can be used to stave off hunger and poverty as a defense against many things that can happen. You can physically build walls with money to defend yourself. You can buy guns and other things that you like to do to defend yourself, right? But wisdom also is a defense because if you understand how the world works, it says the wise man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. So you can avoid the whole situation entirely if you have wisdom. You won't even need the money. For money is downstream from wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom reveals herself. And she comes and says who she is, where she was at the beginning. For she, she was with him in the beginning when the foundations of the world were built. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. There's a mystery to it and a beauty. But it explains everything else in scripture after a fashion. It says here, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy in the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. So power comes from wisdom. What else comes from wisdom? Well, love. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Riches and honor are with me. Riches and honor are with me. Durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the path of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. That's just wisdom, beloved. The trouble with sin is it's opposite these things, and that the sin in the world has stopped us all from being more profitable. But Jesus here continues to talk about reward. Why does he do that? Well, because everything you've ever gotten came from a God who freely gives to those that love him and those that don't. You think of every evil man that can ever touch your life or that you could ever hear about the evil deeds they did. Everything they got, the strength that they had day by day, every bit of food, every resource, all came from one source. They just don't see it. They just don't do that thing that all men ought to do, which is to thank God for what they gave him. The problem is, beloved, that all men have had this single problem all the way back to Adam. Why didn't he turn to God and say, when Eve did what she did, I should die for her. Death is deserved here. Because he wanted her more than he wanted the God that gave her. You know this because it's the sin that is in every man's heart. The idolatry of self. The love of things that are freely given to us rather than the one who freely gave. The blessing, beloved, in becoming poor for the kingdom's sake is that God freely rewards it because it is the best thing. And the best thing is the things that receive free rewards. Beloved, the best thing is the gospel of God. I tell you this with my whole heart. Because of what God has done for me and in the, in the freely giving of the word, my entire life has been now to freely share the gospel of Jesus. Right. I know that is the case for many here. And I pray that you would see that everything you have is subject to that. And the primary reason is because it's the best thing. Because God is the best thing. Right. But the wonderful thing about that is that everything you give to him, everything you give away will 
tilt the scale, that God will always balance. He says again and again that he loves to give reward. Well, blessed is the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Don't you understand, beloved? If you make yourself poor in an earthly sense, God shall pour out more and more heavenly blessings. Matter of fact, the mystery of it is that Jesus said when the disciples turned to him and said, oh, well, we've left all to come to you. They said, oh, well, there's no one that's going to come leave all for me and not both gain heavenly things and earthly things poured out. Because God owns all things, gives freely of all things. So we shouldn't worship people who have put themselves in places of poverty, whether things evils of themselves or evils of others. But we should recognize that Jesus is teaching here a principle. Everything you have is best given back to him and to the service of his word. Thank you for your good attention. If you would turn to John chapter 1, we will continue reading from... Verse 35 this is the word of the true and living God. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, by interpretation, a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can there be any good thing that come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under a fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the heaven open, and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Word of God, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for bringing us all here together today, this morning, Lord, to worship you and to study your word, Lord. We ask that we would be made disciples like those that we read of today, Lord, that we would study your word, that we would come and see what it is that you have for us here today, Lord. We ask this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
really appreciate what John brought today. It's uh, uh, a beautiful harmony that we both chose to study the disciples and, and that sort of part of scripture today. There are no accidents. There, are, there is nothing that is not under God's providential will. There's nothing that he does not have the ability to bring into subjection underneath him. So we've been studying the book of John. We've been concentrating on how John is drawing out the divinity of Christ. It's likely that he wrote this gospel after the other three gospels were written. It is very different from the other three gospels. About 90% of what you read in this book is not found in the other three gospels. So it's clear that he's really coming to this after the fact, trying to give us all the information that we would need that were not already found in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. I said this is my favorite book in the Bible. I think that's true. I think that this is considered by many to be one of the most sacred and holy books in all of Scripture. I've heard it said that the 17th chapter of John is the holiest chapter in all of Scripture. It's when Christ prays to his Father and explores the Trinity and the blessings thereof and the blessings to come in the relationship between God and his church. We've studied closely the concept of the logos, the logos. We don't really know how they said it 2,000 years ago. We've studied the word being made flesh among us. We've studied the ministry of John the Baptist, not who is a different John from John the author of the Gospel of John. And now we come to the end of John the Baptist's role in this early chapter, and we see how John the Baptist really did perform his station as the one who was crying in the wilderness, making the way straight, as foretold in Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. And now, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, is how he put it earlier. And we know that this is actually... Behold the Lamb of God. He's repeating himself because he wants us to know this is really important. He does this, John does this over and over in this chapter. Uh, there are things that he repeats so that we understand the importance of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Coexistence, pre existence. This is important. Do not mess it up. John, bear witness of him. And his fullness have we all received. And grace for grace. And then John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And now looking upon Jesus as he walked and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. We've already studied in Revelation chapter 5 where John returns many years later. And describes the vision that he has of the Lamb of God slain and the power that he brings. 
And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? So, interesting question. We learned that Christ teaches often by asking questions. We also learn, we know from Genesis that God likes to ask his people rhetorical questions. He likes to find out how they would position themselves. And so he's saying, what seek ye? And they say unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master or teacher, where dwellest thou? Where do you live? They want to know where he lives. It's kind of a mundane question. We want to see where you live, master. But I think that the response is not nearly as divine as the question. The question was a perfect question. It is what God chose to say to his disciples. The disciples are just answering what they think he wants to hear or perhaps uh, the first thing that popped into their mind. Because what are they really seeking? Do they, do, when they say, we want to see where you live, they mean, we want to see where you live in this earthly realm. But what are they really seeking? What are we all really seeking? We're seeking holiness. We're seeking redemption. We're seeking salvation from sin. Because we know in our heart of hearts that we are unclean, that we have sinned against the Father, that we are unable to keep his commandments. But they don't say that. We don't say that. What are we looking for? What do you seek? Where do you dwell? Where do you live? He saith unto them, come and see. And now we come to the third repetition in the chapter of John. What I think might be the most important one, and certainly the one that should be convicting us the most here today. Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with them that, that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, my understanding of Jewish time is when they say it was the 10th hour, they don't mean like 10 o'clock in the morning. They're counting from 9 o'clock in the morning. So the 10th hour would have been 7 p.m. I think that's how this works. And so then he, they dwell with them the rest of the day, which means until, um, I assume, until dark or even through the evening. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So this is just John introducing us to all of the disciples. In my study here, I've realized, frankly, that I'm in over my head. I assume most gospel ministers are in over their head when they start studying the disciples. There are 12 of them. They are people unto themselves, right? Worlds unto themselves. God made all of us individuals. And studying the disciples, we just have very... Um, we have very little to go on, and it's also just spread out through the entire New Testament and even extra-biblical sources. So uh, you could spend years and years and decades studying the disciples, who they are, their persons, their occupations, their, uh, their ministries after Christ's ministry. But today we're going to try to understand what John wanted us to know about Christ's early encounters with his disciples. One of the two, which heard John speak and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, the Meshach. And he brought them to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. 
We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Unless I'm mistaken. It might be 16. We'll get there. I'm sorry, 16. It is 16. Because, again, there are no accidents. God has a plan for creation. He had a plan for creation from before the beginning. This is chapter 16 of Matthew, verses 17. Uh, Let's start with uh, 16, actually. 15, let's say. Whom say ye that I am? The Christ says. And Simon Peter answers and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven, has revealed it unto thee. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Petros, Peter, upon this rock shall I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, death will not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shalt be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, the keys of salvation and the keys of damnation. These are two keys. They're actually referenced in the Old Testament. Again, it's all harmonious. Everything fits together perfectly because God made it so. So Peter is the rock and he's being called Cephas, which is to say a stone, another word for a stone, a rock. And Christ names his disciples we, it's actually a fascinating thing to study if you ever care to understand the history of names at all. You know, we are given, we, we are given a name at birth. It's written on a birth certificate. Um, and we think that's our name. And it is a name for us. Um, when we say name, we mean a sound or a symbol that refers to a person. Uh, my name is Daniel. It just refers to me. But when they say a name in Greek, onoma, it means much more. It's like the totality of that person. So when I say, when we say that we pray in the name of Christ, it's not just in the sound, like um, according to the sound or anything like that. It's deeper than that. It's according to his person. It's according to the totality of this representative that we have in Christ. And so when he names his disciples, it's not... It's not like a nickname. It's not just a sound or like a cute thing that he's doing. It's adding to their identity, to their personhood. And we just, we have a really difficult time with this because we all go by the name that we're born with, that we're given upon birth. But for most of human history, it would, you wouldn't just give your name to someone, especially like in a lot of these um, ancient sort of ways of life. Your name would have been something sort of sacred to you that you wouldn't necessarily give to just anybody on the street. And you'd have a number of names. A good example of this, if you guys have read Lord of the Rings, Gandalf goes by Gandalf, he goes by Mithrandir, he's got like four other names. That's, that is much more how names would have been. And they all refer to something about that person's identity uh, and contribute to the sort of totality of it. And in the Greek, the onoma, it really is the completeness of the person. So there's something in a name, in, in a name in the biblical sense. It's just deeper than the way that we think of it today. So Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas. Another good example of this is that John, in the book of John, never refers to himself as John. 
It's one of the ways that we know that it was actually written by John is that all the other disciples are named by name, but John is always the disciple that Christ loved. And there is other Johns in the book of John. Peter's father, John, is um, obviously John the Baptist that we've read about quite a bit early on, and then John, Peter's father, um, later in the book. So, But John refers to himself in the context of the Gospel of John as the disciple that Jesus loved. And so that's how John sees himself. That's, that's, his, that's his, one of the um, ways that uh, he's referring to himself, and it really says something about his relationship to himself and his identity in Christ. He doesn't see himself as merely John the evangelist. He sees him as the disciple Jesus loved. And how good would it be if we all viewed ourselves in relation to Jesus first? The day following, Jesus would go, would go forth into Galilee and finds Philip. And he says unto Philip, follow me. This is what he says to all the elect. Follow me. Get up. Follow me. Faith without works is dead, so we follow him. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and of the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there be any good thing that come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, come and see. So this is an interesting thing because uh, one of the prophecies in the Old Testament says uh, that the Messiah will come out of uh, Naphtali and Zebulun, which are these two sort of pre, uh, sort of prior to this era, these were the regions that would have been just to the west of Galilee and slightly to the west of that would have been Zebulun. And Zebulun is where you would have found Nazareth and Naphtali is where you would have found uh, would have found uh, just, uh, for example, Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from. And so Nathaniel's asking, can there be any good thing that come out of Nazareth? But they knew that it would be coming from that region. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile and whom there is no deceit, an authentic person, a sincere person. If you've listened to me for any amount of time, Sincerity, I think, is one of the high, you know, it's not, classically speaking, we've got Christian virtues, we've got prudence, we've got temperance, we've got fortitude, we've got faith, we've got charity, we've got love. But sincerity is what Christ is referring to here, and I think in recent years, the last several centuries, we've come to realize that sincerity is a Christian virtue. This guilelessness, this lack of deception, this lack of... Having a mask put on. Certainly, like John, like the American culture, we love authentic people. We love people who just are what they seem to be. And I think that that's. Uh, I think it's a deeply true thing. I think it's a deeply true thing. Like Christ is the light of God shining forth, the perfect express image of His person. This whole chapter, we've been studying how He is the light and the life. What is light? Light is. It's a particle and it's a wave and it moves at 168,000 miles per hour or per second and it enters into your retina so that you can see. So, and Christ is that light. He is the means by which we see. It doesn't get more clear than that. 
Behold, an Israelite in who, indeed, in whom there is no God. The other thing that he's saying here is that he's an Israelite indeed, like literally in action, in being. He's an Israelite. He, he struggles with God in action. This is truly some, like a truly a son of Jacob. Right? That's, it's such a high compliment. Christ comes and he's paying Nathaniel this incredibly high compliment. And Nathaniel says unto him, so you gotta understand, Nathaniel's hearing this and he's like, you don't know me. We've no, I don't, how do you say all the, uh, I'm an Israelite indeed? I'm an Israelite indeed? And I, I have no guile? How, do, how would you know? We've just met. Nathaniel saith unto him, whence, how, how do you know me? Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, before that Philip called thee, and when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Because he's saying, I knew where you were just you know, moments ago when you were by yourself under the fig tree. Before Philip came to you to bring you to me, I knew where you were. I, I have omniscience. <laughs> I know all things. I've known where you were since you were formed in your mother's womb. And when Nathaniel hears this, it's his sincere reaction. He just immediately knows recognition of the light of God. Thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Remember a minute ago when we were reading about Peter? You are the rock on which I will build my church. What was he saying that in response to? He was saying that in response to Peter admitting that Christ is the son of God. When the disciples are caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he says, oh, ye of little faith. And he calms the storm. They worship him as the son of God. And that is our right response to the Lord. Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree. Believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. And we shall not merely see greater things than these. In John chapter 14, we learn, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me. Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Greater works than these will the believer do. It's an incredible blessing we've been given to be grafted into the body of Christ. That not just greater miracles than the ones we've seen here, but greater miracles we will do as the body of Christ. And he say unto him, we're back to John chapter 1 now. Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see the heavens open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is from Genesis chapter 28. And we'll, we'll cover the story in just a few minutes. Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals his brother's birthright. Steals his brother's birthright, his older brother's birthright, colluding with his deceptive mother. It's a grievous sin. You can't, I can't imagine, I mean, if one of my little brothers did this to me, it would be bad news for them. So Jacob kind of runs away. 
And Jacob goes out to Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. So he's sleeping in the wilderness on stones. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on earth. And the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Jacob, Israel. Not yet Israel, but becomes Israel. Jacob has this vision with angels and descending. Angels ascending and descending. When you hear of Jacob's ladder, that's what it's referring to. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is the covenant between God and Jacob. And behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and I will bring thee again unto this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done what that which I have spoken up to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And he rose up early that morning and took a stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. And he vowed a vow saying, If God be with me, And will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. That's the covenant between Jacob and the Lord. That a tenth of everything Jacob makes, that tenth of what we make. As his, as the house of God should go to the Lord. The Lord says, follow me. The Lord says, follow me. He also says, when we ask him, we want to see where you live, Lord. We want to see heaven, Lord. We want to see redemption and salvation and sanctification, Lord. He says, come and see. And then his disciples The first thing they say to another, they say, come and see. And so I'm telling you today, we need to go out into the world. We need to follow our Lord and tell others to come and see. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this word, for your holy example, Lord. Your precious son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, Lord, who drew us near unto him, Lord, that we would be made like him, Lord. Let us, Lord, look upon his shining face, Father. Let us thank you constantly for him. Let us dwell in his word. Let us meditate on the things that we have learned. Father, let us come and see. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.